Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Halvrezos. Today, Stephen Kimber, author of The Sweetness and the Lime. You know the guy, middle-aged, good at what he does, prickly, or at least socially awkward. Either way, not very sociable, and something of a mystery, but not a mystery that invites investigation. He appears often in literature and films. A burnt-out case, as Graham Greene called one of his characters. Some go through a kind of personal and social transformation. Others spiral into a variety of bad ends. Eli Cooper, in his mid-fifties, with no partner, working nights as a newspaper editor, seems to fit the mold. But in his novel The Sweetness in the Lime, Stephen Kimber infuses Eli with a humanity that belies his outward appearance and takes us on a journey of good and bad decisions and their unexpected consequences, from Halifax through Havana and the Cuban exile community in Miami. Stephen, welcome to Book Me. Thank you very much, Acosta. It's good to be here. Now, like Eli, uh, you have newspaper experience yourself, but tell us how your connection with Cuba began and grew. It actually goes back to the early 2000s, maybe before. I, I think my wife and I had gone a couple of times to Cuba on vacations, to the resorts, that kind of thing. And we were sitting on a beach, perhaps having a drink or two. And I had finished a number of books at that point, and, and I was thinking about the next one. And, and she suggested that I perhaps should think beyond the Nova Scotia box in which I had uh, written for all those previous books and think about something more expansive. Uh, Cuba came up in that conversation in part because we decided to go from the resort to Havana uh, for a day tour. And we'd missed the regular tours, the tours that the, the resort offered. So we asked somebody at the resort and they put us in touch with somebody who put us in touch with somebody. And we were told to, to stand outside the, the, the resort at a certain hour in the morning and walk in a certain direction and somebody would pick us up, all this wonderful mystery. <laughs> and as we drove in uh, to, to Havana, every once in a while somebody would say, you know, put your head down. Uh, and we would do that, and it turned out these were, were police checkpoints. It was very interesting, and, and the, the woman who was our guide was a probably 30-something single mother, spoke perfect English, she uh, trained as a teacher, but of course she couldn't make a living as a teacher in Cuba, and decided that she would do guiding off books, as it were. And so we went, you know, that became intriguing to me, and a couple of years later I went back to Cuba to do research for this novel, and ran into uh, another off-the-books uh, tour guide, a guy in his 70s who had a long history in Cuba. We went around and he showed me the Havana I wouldn't see as a tourist, which was the whole idea. But then we were sitting on the, the balcony at the Hotel National overlooking the Bay of Havana, uh, smoking cigars, drinking mojitos. And uh, Barack Obama had just been elected. And I was curious, uh, as were many people, as to what would happen in terms of Cuba uh, and the United States in terms of, of relations. And he just sort of looked at me and he said, nothing will change until they solve the problem of the five. And I had no idea what he was talking about. It was the Cuban five who were five Cuban intelligence agents who were in prison in the United States at the time. And he told me a little bit more about this. And in Cuba, it was considered a serious injustice. And, and I became intrigued, went back and got sidetracked totally by this story for, I guess, the next five years which became a nonfiction book, uh, What Lies Across the Water. And 
that book really derailed my novel for, for all those years, but at the same time, it gave me a much deeper understanding than I ever would have had otherwise about Cuba and its people and helped to underpin the book that became The Sweetness in the Line. So that's sort of a, a short version of my Cuba experience. Right. Now, when we do meet Eli, he's a, a grumpy night editor in Halifax, <laughs> uh, working his magic on badly written copy from inexperienced reporters. And then he goes home where he cares for his father, who's suffering from dementia. It's a very uh, caged life, really. What does it take to break him out of it? Well, I think what it, what it takes really are two things that happen almost simultaneously. He gets awoken early the day after a, a, a shift uh, that had gone, as any other shift had gone, and he's called into the office for a, an all-staff meeting. And that all-staff meeting, of course, turns out to be the closure of the newspaper that he is part of. And it shuts down. He goes off to drink. And while he is imbibing and commiserating with uh, fellow staffers, his father has wandered off from the house, uh, ended up in a snowbank, and died. Uh, so he is suddenly without a job, which was one of his underpinnings, and, and without his father, who he had a complicated relationship with, but was nonetheless you know, part of a life that, that he had settled into uh, and had no intention of, of ever leaving. And then suddenly that just put him on a course to reimagine, reevaluate his life. Not that he intended to, but that's what happened. <laughs> well, well, after his uh, very bad day, Eli still can't seem to make any decisions. So you have his sister step in, and uh, she makes a decision, sends him off to Cuba for a vacation. Now, yes. I mean, she, she's trying to be the, the, the good sister, and she's gone off and become a corporate lawyer in, in Calgary, uh, and her view of Eli is that uh, he's wasting his life and he should be doing something else. But she's also guilty because he's the one who's been taking care of their father. So she buys him a ticket to Cuba, and he ends up at a resort uh, for two weeks to sort of get away from it all before he uh, is supposed to come back and start his life again. And in that two-week period, uh, he, he starts out in a resort, like the resort that I went to, and he's bored. I mean, this is a couple's resort. They're all couple's resorts or family resorts. And he's brought a couple of books, but he's run out of those books, and he goes to the kiosk at the resort and discovers that the only books they have are Fidel Castro on war strategy and Che Guevara, but there's nothing he can read as a sort of beach book. So he gets um, into his mind that he will go to Havana. He ends up exactly in the situation that I described earlier where, you know, you, you get a an off-the-books guide right. who takes you in. And in this case, it's Leo, who is uh, an entrepreneur of the uh, Cuban sort, uh, and his daughter, who is uh, somebody who, who was a teacher, speaks perfect English. And at first, this is an adventure, but he's clearly taken with her very early on. But the question is, is she at all interested? Is he really all, at all interested? He's, he's not right. sure what, what any of this means, mm -hmm. really. Now, as you mentioned earlier, um, you got to know Cuba intimately while working on your nonfiction book, What Lies Across the Water. But what are some of the things you learned while reporting that helped you create the Cuban characters in this novel? Essentially, what I learned is that Cubans are much more complicated than the stereotypes that uh, we in North America have of them and of their country, in fact. I mean, there's this sense of Cuba as a kind of a police state where everybody is nervous and scared. And, and I'm not denying any of the, some of the repressive things that have happened in Cuba, 
But if you're an average Cuban on a day-to-day basis, those things don't affect you. Other things do. The blockade, the American blockade of Cuba that prevents uh, food and materials and and all sorts of other things from getting in certainly does. But Cubans are well-educated, extremely well-educated. They understand the problems that exist in their country, but they also, in, in most cases, are very patriotic. They're proud of what their country is in terms of its education system, in terms of its healthcare system. There's a joke in, in, in the book, which is a pretty common joke, which is you know one of the successes of the revolution, education, healthcare, uh, and one of the failures, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, it, it, it's that kind of thing where Cubans have a very clear-eyed sense of their country with all its foibles and weaknesses. But for the most part, they are also very happy there. I mean, the people who leave, who left in the early days were ideologically different than the Castro regime that started. But in, in, in later years, a lot of the people who left Cuba left Cuba simply for economic reasons, not because they were uh, hated the, the system or anything else. Right. And, and for me, just being around Cubans and enjoying drinks and conversation and realizing how how similar in some ways to to us they are all helped me to understand that this was a the, the circumstances were different the circumstances are peculiar in many ways to us but there's you know humanity there that exists as well there was this first and what Eli I guess felt was his his last love back in high school I was wondering, as a writer, how much of a challenge was it to rekindle something like teenaged infatuation for Mariella in a 50-something man and make it credible? I hope it's credible. That's, uh, you know, obviously for others to decide. But for me, it's not necessarily unusual to have a high school romance crush that affects you going forward if it doesn't work out. But over time, for most people, you move on. In Eli's case, he didn't and he couldn't because of the way in which it ended. So she became this unbelievable sort of iconic figure to him, the girl that he'd fallen in love with in high school, and he couldn't get past it. It took his father's death, losing his job, being in a foreign country, and he has a couple of misadventures along the way that suddenly makes him realize that he is missing something, that he wants love. At some point early on in, in the process, the title for the book was What's Love Got to Do With It? And that figures in, in the, the epigraph at the beginning, but that was what I was trying to figure out. In, in relationships, particularly as people age, what does love actually have to do with the relationship that develops, and what does that mean? You know, that was the bigger question I was trying to explore there. Well, I'm glad you went with the title you did. I think it's better. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the significance of the sweetness in the lime. One of the characters in the book, and there are a number of sort of more minor characters. There's Leo, who was the tour guide, the uncle of Mariella, and then his friend who runs the casa, he and his his wife run the casa, and the casa is, is of course, the bed and breakfast in in Cuba, and he uh, specializes in making mojitos for uh, the people who stay there, and he talks about the sweetness in the sour of the lime. The perfect mojito has that sweetness in the lime. That seemed like a good title, and, and I have to say, you know, it emerged from a long process. I think the editors at Nimbus and I were in agreement that my earlier titles were not the right title. I think there were probably five or six different titles that were suggested uh, during that period, uh, and The Sweetness in the Lime did seem like exactly the right one. 
It is. And I did the cover design, which, I was, <laughs> which I'm in love with. You've written some sex scenes in The Sweetness in the Lime. Uh, you also did for your novel Reparations. I'm curious, is that easier or more difficult than, say, you know, crafting a, a plot development or creating a character? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, sex scenes are hard in the sense that you don't want to overdo it. In some ways, you become, I think, a little more clinical in describing what happened as a way to avoid the hyperbole and, and other things in, in describing those things. I wanted to be clear sort of what was happening, why, and how without getting into details or trying to make it erotic in any sense. That's not the book that I'm writing. The sex scenes are, I hope, realistic in a sense that a reader can read those and recognize what not so much the sex part of it, but the mind that's going on while all this is happening. After meeting some hardcore cynics over the years and getting to know some of them better, I was surprised to learn that beneath that spiky exterior, there was often a disappointed romantic. Does that fit, Eli? I think probably felt himself to be a romantic. If you go back, I mean, he was certainly not somebody who was uh, outgoing even as a younger person. But he found this person who he was in love with, and she seemed to love him back. He was never quite sure why, but he certainly felt that she was in love with him and that it falls apart. And it's that romance that he can't have that is the one that sort of keeps him going. And then he sort of gets to the point where he doesn't believe that there's any possibility of ever having a romance. And so his relationships with women, particularly his, his friend Liv, who is uh, an editor at the newspaper as well, are utilitarian sex, I think is the way he described it. And the, the idea that he would really be in love and really care about somebody is not something that he can contemplate at that point until it sort of smacks him in the face. Now, aside from the traditional touristic relationship with Cuba, there are a lot of people in the Atlantic provinces who've built close cultural ties with the country, uh, especially with musicians. I'm curious, has your work, two books now, led you to connections with other writers in Cuba? Yes, to a certain extent. I mean, they're more... Canadian Cuban writers or American Cuban writers uh, rather than Cuban Cuban writers, although I have had relationships with writers in Cuba and, you know, I, I was lucky enough uh, with the last book to be invited to present it at the uh, Havana International Book Fair and I don't know how familiar people are with that, but it's, it's an amazing event where 20, 30,000 people come to the castle uh, in Havana. It's a very educated population who read books and, and so you will see people at the end of the day with big bags of books that are relatively cheap in Cuba. So I met a number of authors during that period, some of whom I'm still in touch with, and you know, learned a lot again about what it is that is special about the people of the place. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. No problem at all, Costas. Thanks so much for having me. Stephen Kimber is the author of The Sweetness in the Lime. It's published by Nimbus. If you want to hear more conversations with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, the authors, illustrators, editors, and designers, and find out what inspires their work, we have dozens on bookmepodcast.ca. Be sure to tell your friends who like nothing better than to dive into a good book. And if you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Stephen Kimber, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. 
Whenever we add a new interview, we post an alert on Instagram, at Podcast. If you're in the Lunenburg County area, you can hear one of our podcasts every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM just before sign-off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. Laura Hines mixes the digital mojitos for our social media. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.